are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering online. Please go to www.hopechurchguildford.com for more details. We look forward to getting to know you. I'm going to hand over now to uh, Stuart, who's going to uh, uh, bring the word of God to us. Uh, But before that, we're going to have uh, our reading. Genesis 12, 1 to 9, the call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh, at Shechem. At the time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued towards the Negev. Good morning. Nice to see you. And my name is Stuart. I'm one of the leaders at Hope Church. I just want to say thank you to Alicia for reading the first half of the chapter today. I'm going to be continuing our series in Genesis, which is our final passage we're looking at. And that's from Genesis 12. We'll be finishing off next week with an overview of the whole book. The series has been called Genesis, A Blueprint for Life. And the part of the blueprint that we'll be considering today is that God calls us to be people who take him at his word. But not in a vague, mushy way, but in a real rubber-hits-the-road sort of way. Will we hold on to the promises of God when following Jesus is costly? Will we keep trusting even when there's no evidence yet of God delivering on some promises. Now, for those of you who remember cash, here's a close-up on the screen of a £10 note. Have you ever read the small print or wondered what the £10 really means? Well, this is what it says on a banknote. Bank of England, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of £10, signed Martin Lowther, Chief Cashier. So if it's a promise signed by the chief cashier of the Bank of England, that's got to be a pretty reliable promise, hasn't it? Well, perhaps it used to be. Up until 1931, in theory, you could take your banknote to the Bank of England on Threadneedle Street in London and cash it in. Apparently, you could walk away with £10 of gold. The promise was, was real. And that was called the gold standard. The bank would try to keep reserves of gold sufficient to honour all these promises written on banknotes around the country. That's what a banknote was 
a promise on paper of something tangibly valuable. Much more convenient, perhaps, than carrying around gold bullion or a bag of gold coins. However, 90 years ago, the bank broke the gold standard and realised it really couldn't honour all these promises. Banknotes carried on. They continued to have the appearance of being a promise. Still got those words on today. But you can no longer cash in your promise. If you, want to, if you go to a bank now wanting to exchange this promissory note, the best they can do for you is take your scruffy banknote, perhaps one you've put through the wash, and exchange it for another newer banknote. One promise in exchange for another. In fact, if the Bank of England actually was honouring all these promises now, they'd quickly go bankrupt. My understanding is that £10 in weight of gold is today worth around £150,000 sterling. I wonder if we sometimes look at God's promises in this way, not really worth the paper they're written on. Comforting, encouraging, useful for spurring ourselves on when we're discouraged perhaps. But do we really believe that God will honour all the wonderful promises in the Bible for us? Let's look today at Genesis 12, where God makes some big promises to Abraham. We'll have a look at God's call on Abraham and the promises God makes to him. Then we'll break for a song. And the second part of my talk, we'll look briefly at a little case study in Abraham's life. How, despite God's promises, Abraham struggles to trust God. And then we'll reflect on some of God's promises to us and how we can grow in our trust that God will follow through on them. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a promise maker and thank you that you are a promise keeper. We thank you for your word, which is packed full of wonderful promises. Help us to understand them, help us to believe them, help us to trust in you, that you will follow through in your time on all these promises. Amen. We'll start with looking at the call of Abraham. I suggest you have a Bible open in front of you today. I'll be bringing things out of the text. Don't just take my word for it. Trust in what God has written in the Bible and check for yourself that what I'm saying matches up with the text. In verse one, we'll jump straight into the action with God's call on Abraham, a man who has barely been mentioned so far in the book of Genesis. Last time Chris preached, he very helpfully looked at some of the family trees in chapter 11. Going back to Noah, remember that he had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The line of Shem is the one we're particularly interested in because Abraham's father Terah was a descendant of Shem. And that's really all we know at this point in Genesis about Abraham. I'm going to be calling him Abraham because God doesn't give him the name by which he's better known, Abraham, until chapter 17 of Genesis. So that's my challenge today is to keep saying Abraham and not Abraham. Now, Abraham means literally exalted father, which is ironic because verse four tells us that he's already 75 years old, but he and his wife Sarai have sadly been unable to have children due to infertility. One might imagine that this could have been a source for bitterness for Abraham, especially at a time when not having children was not a respectable lifestyle option. Having children was seen as an essential way of continuing your family name. In particular, Abraham would have wanted an heir. 
There's no reason given why God chooses this particular man. Abraham is old, he's childless, and he's stranded hundreds of miles away from where God wants to base his people. It's almost like God doesn't, it's almost like God chooses Abraham for what he doesn't have in order to show God's blessing clearly in his life. And now God reveals himself to Abraham and asks him to give up three things of what he does have. Firstly, God calls Abraham to leave his country. Now, this was before the time of package holidays or travel insurance. When we're allowed to go abroad again, we can rely on a British embassy in most countries to get us out of trouble. We take our passports with us. They're like promises that we can return to the UK whenever we want. No, for Abraham, Abraham, Abraham to leave his country, that would have been to leave behind his security and to step into the unknown. The journey would have been hazardous and other countries often hostile. Secondly, God calls Abraham to leave his people. Remember from last week that God has scattered people all over the known earth. After the Tower of Babel, Abraham's ancestors ended up at the far end of Babylonia. Again, staying with his people, the descendants of Shem, would have been a place of security. It would have been where Abraham was known, where he had a reputation, where he could relax. Thirdly, God calls Abraham to leave his father's household. Now, the culture at this time, staying under the authority and protection of your father, was seen as loyal, respectful and important for the overall safety of the tribe. Leaving his father Terah's household would have been strange. People would have commented. Some may have seen it as reckless or disrespectful. So God is calling Abraham to give up an awful lot. Does God reassure Abraham by explaining the detailed plans, timescales, how he'll protect and provide for Abraham and his family along the way? Well, in a word, no. He simply says, go to the land I will show you. Now, when I go on a journey, I want a plan. I want maps, I want money, mobile phone, accommodation booked, and preferably my own duvet. But God just calls Abraham to obedience, to trust in God's provision. So how is God calling us today? Well, firstly, God is not calling us to conquer a land. The land of Israel was given to Abraham's descendants. We, however, have our hope in an even better place, a new heavens and a new earth. By placing our trust in God's Son, we can hope with confidence that God is preparing for us a better place than this broken world. What is God calling us to? Well, he's inviting us today to be his children. If you've accepted that invitation to be God's child, Rest in the security that he is your father. Respond to him with a simple trust that a child does in the knowledge of its father's love. God isn't like the critical boss who will give you the performance-related pay only if you deliver on your targets. No, God's heart is more like the father who, on his child's sports day at school, will cheer the child's every little step taken to the finish line. So how will we respond to God's call today? Well, let's carry on looking at our passage, looking at God's promises. Note that God's call on Abraham comes before the wonderful promises.
that God makes to him in verses two and three. But there's no conditional link between the two. God doesn't say, if you leave your country, your people and your father's household, then I'll make you into a great nation and so on. Verse two just starts with, I will. And we'll see the second half of today's talk that God's promises are absolutely not dependent on our performance. As a parent, I sometimes make conditional statements such as, if you tidy up your mess in the next 10 minutes, then you can have your delicious looking Percy Pig sweetie. But this is not that sort of promise. God is choosing Abraham for his purposes and God is going to follow through because of God's character, not because of Abraham measuring up to a standard. So a better parental analogy would be to, when we say, nothing that you will ever do will stop you being my son or my daughter. I will always love you, regardless of how good, respectful and obedient you are, because you are my child. And that's more like God's heart. Here are the four promises that God makes to Abraham in verses two and three. Firstly, God promises, I will make you into a great nation. As we've seen earlier, this didn't look very likely at this stage. Verse five indicates that Abraham was wealthy, but he had no land and no descendants. And where he was going, he had no friends or connections. But what we see in later chapters of Genesis is that Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac fathered Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. God delivered on this promise. Secondly, God promises, I will bless you. The particularly pressing matter that Abraham was missing was an heir. Abraham actually had to wait 25 years from the date of this promise until his son Isaac's birth when Abraham was 100 years old. And as we wait for God to come through on his promises, our faith is tested, isn't it? God does deliver on his promises, but not always as quickly as we'd like. Thirdly, God promises, I will make your name great. Now, the normal way that we might build up our reputation with others is by staying put among the people that know us. But God had other plans. Abraham's name became great because people could see that God was blessing him, not because Abraham was especially gifted or hardworking. God delivers on his promises. Fourthly, God promises you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is an early promise to us Gentiles, those of us not from a Jewish heritage, that God's blessing would come on us through the line of Abraham, through the nation of Israel, and ultimately through Jesus, Abraham's greatest descendant. The first verse in the New Testament describes Matthew's account of Jesus as a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in the penultimate verse of the book of Matthew, Jesus commissions his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. So through Abraham's greatest son, Jesus, all nations are blessed. Can you see? Again, God delivers on his promises. So far, we've looked at Abraham's call. We've looked at God's promises. 
Let's look briefly at the journey Abraham makes before we break halfway. We've observed a few things. Let's observe a few things before we look at the actual route of Abraham's journey. First of all, Abraham obeyed God's instructions from verse 1 to go into the land. I'll show you. It's a simple point, but a challenging one. God told him to go and he went. Secondly, he didn't let old age put him off. Abraham was 75 when he left his father's household behind and set off on this adventure. I wonder if you ever think, I'll leave the risky stuff to those who are younger. Well, God does use those who are young, but he also uses those with a few more grey hairs or not so many hairs. God sent Moses away for 40 years until he was 80 before Moses was really mature enough for God's purposes. Don't discount yourself because you're a bit older. The church needs your wisdom, your life experience and your faith refined over the years. Third thing to notice is God didn't ask Abraham to leave everything. We see in these verses that Abraham took his family, his possessions and some people, presumably servants, with him. God did ask him to leave country, his people and his father's household, but he took what he could with him. God calls us sometimes to give things up, but he also knows what we need. Now here's a map of Abraham's route. The red line shows his journey taken in several parts. It starts at the bottom right at Ur, at the far end of Babylonia. The dotted red line up to Haran shows where Abraham travelled part of the way with his father Terah up to Haran. And that's where Terah settled. And you can read about that at the end of chapter 11. The solid red, red line going down shows where Abraham takes up God's particular call to him. From Haran, Abraham leaves his father's household and heads down past Aleppo and Damascus to Shechem, to the land where the Canaanites lived. Overall, this was a journey of about a thousand miles, no small undertaking on foot. Remember that the Canaanites were in this land. We read this here in verse 6. Chris mentioned last time that the Canaanites were the descendants of Noah's son Ham, whereas Abraham descended from Noah's son Shem. But this was the Canaanites' land at the moment, and they weren't just going to hand it over to a very distant relative who turned up telling them that God had given them their land. No, God actually wasn't actually giving the land to Abraham yet. It would come much later to his descendants. Verse 7 here reports what God says to Abraham when he arrives in Shechem. To your offspring, I will give this land. I wonder if Abraham was a bit disappointed that he wasn't going to get the land in his lifetime. Sometimes we're so focused on ourselves, we forget that God's plans may be much bigger than me. However, God here is giving Abraham another wonderful promise to your offspring. Abraham still has no children. Perhaps he's brought along his nephew Lot as a backup heir. But Abraham and Sarai certainly have no offspring of their own at this point. The New Testament book of Hebrews recognises Abraham's faith. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. But this wasn't blind faith. 
Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he did know with whom he was going. The more we know God, the more informed our faith is. So what was Abraham's response as he arrived at his destination? It was to build an altar and to worship God. As we've been reminded of God's promises and how he always follows through on his promises, what is our response? Well, the band's going to lead us now in a song called Yes and Amen, which talks all about the promises of God in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 1 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the Amen is spoken to us, spoken by us to the glory of God. Many of the promises of the Bible are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us worship him as we sing this song. And afterwards, I'll talk briefly from the second half of Genesis 12. Welcome back. For this next section, I'll read out verses 10 to 20 as we go along and make some much briefer comments as we go. Then we'll move on to how we can apply this chapter of Genesis to our lives. Now, there's quite a gear shift in these verses from the first half of the chapter, which was about God's promises and Abraham's obedience. As often happens in the Bible, now some of our hero's flaws are going to be revealed. So verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. 
The first thing to note here was that there was a famine in the land, and this was more serious than just running out of cinnamon raisin bagels. Abraham has gone on this thousand mile journey, trusting in God, and now there's no food. Again, God's promised blessing does not come straight away. Being a Christian now does not give us miraculous protection against hard times. And in our passage, Abraham decides to head down to Egypt where there's food. We shouldn't read every setback in life as bringing God's character or promises into question. Next, we can see that Abraham comes up with a plan to keep himself safe. Chapter 20 of Genesis actually shines a bit of light on this. This isn't the last time that Abraham pretends that Sarai is not really his wife. In fact, in that chapter, we see that there is a half-truth in what he says. Sarai is his half-sister. But clearly, Abraham's intention is to deceive the Egyptians into thinking that Sarai is not his wife. It's a callous plan, not only because it is deceitful, but because it fails to protect his wife and it fails to trust in the God who promised to make him into a great nation. If Abraham really trusted in God, he'd know that God will need to preserve him. When Abraham says to Sarai, they will kill me, he essentially means God will not protect my life from the Egyptians despite his promise to make me into a great nation. Let's carry on with verse 14. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. So as Abraham predicted, Sarai's beauty was noticed. When it says the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house in verse 15, this does not mean that Pharaoh invited her around for a cappuccino and a chat about the price of camels. This was presumably a way of saying that Pharaoh, as the supreme ruler of the land, saw that Sarai was available and took her into his harem. We see that Abraham played along with this and profited materially while he left his wife at Pharaoh's mercy. Verse 17, but the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham, what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Abraham had misjudged God, who was not going to let Sarai have sexual relations with another man and so mess up his plan for Abraham and Sarai to start a nation. In order to release Sarai, God sent great plagues upon Pharaoh here in verse 17. And Abraham has misjudged the character of Pharaoh, who was clearly outraged at his deception. And in an embarrassing twist, Pharaoh is the one who acts with integrity once he realises the situation, 
while Abraham's lack of faith and disregard for his wife's welfare brings dishonour upon himself. Allowing his wife to be taken into Pharaoh's harem clearly dishonours his wife Sarai. And Abraham brings God's name into disrepute. When we fail to trust God, it often affects others besides ourselves. So how, how do we trust more in God ourselves? As we come towards the end of, of this passage today, let's review what we've talked about. In this chapter, Abraham demonstrates both responses we can have towards God. In verse 1 to 9, Abraham leaves his security behind and lets God lead him. But then in verses 10 to 20, Abraham regresses in his faith and comes up with his own harebrained scheme, which incurs the wrath both of Pharaoh and God. It goes, as they say, from the sublime to the ridiculous. So Abraham represents choices for us, doesn't he? Firstly, Abraham, the trusting man of God, the one who obeys, the, the man filled with faith that we know him to be. But then in the second half of this chapter, he represents that other choice that we can make, the self-reliant turning inwards and not trusting in God, not believing that God will follow through on his, on his promises. So I've got three questions for us to reflect on today to help us assess our own faith in God. And the first one is this. What have I left behind already? What have I given up? since becoming a Christian. An example for me, when I became a Christian, I fairly soon gave up uh, swearing and over drinking, for example. Um, I, in due course, had the choice to, um, to maybe go for a job, which was I felt God was calling me to, but was less lucrative. So there's some things that I've already left behind, and I'm sure there are for you too. And that might be an encouragement today to think, actually, I've already made choices in my life which have demonstrated a measure of faith. What have I left behind already? My second question for us to consider, what would I be willing to leave? Would I be willing, like perhaps Joe and Paul are doing, to leave my country if God called me overseas? Or close to home, would we be willing to give up going on a social network, if, if we felt God was saying, that's a, a rabbit hole that's not helpful for you, would you be willing to give up a hobby or watching all those Netflix box sex sets if they are just a waste of time? I'm not saying that that is, but it's just, are we willing to let go of these things if God calls us to? Are we willing to let go of our popularity or our reputation, perhaps because God's calling us to be more open about our faith? Now, there's a difference here, I think, to say between being unwilling and reluctant. I think it's possible we don't get much of a sense of Abraham's heart in this passage, but he probably was reluctant to leave his country and his father's house and his people behind. But the point was that he went, he obeyed. Unwilling is different. Unwilling is a nope, that's out of... Um, that's, I'm, not, I'm not willing to give that up, God. That's, that's too much. I don't trust you um, to, to, to go into that part of my life. Which brings us on to the third question I have 
perhaps the most uncomfortable. What would I be unwilling to leave if God called me to? And what are the things in my life that I'm so attached to that actually my attachment to them is greater than my faith in God? Let's be honest about these things and recognise maybe there's some things which we've built a wall around. We need God's help to help us let go, let ease our grip on these things. Do you remember the um, promise to pay the bearer on demand words that we looked at on the banknote earlier? A banknote's value lasts as long as confidence in the currency lasts, but as long as when everyone's confidence in that promise collapses, the value disappears. In contrast, God's ability and um, willingness to follow through on his promises continues. But how do we grow our trust in God? Here's a few things. Firstly, maybe use those three questions we've looked at today to loosen our hold on those things that we're too attached to. Let's prepare ourselves when times are are well to be ready to let go of those things when when God calls us to let go of them and release them. Let's pray and ask God to help us to loosen our hold on these things. And let us remember that God has better things. He doesn't just ask us to release things uh, for the sake of it. It's because he wants us to, um, he has good things for us for the future. Another way that we can build our trust in God is essentially what we've been doing today. Look at the Bible stories, seeing where God gives promises and then where he fulfills them. So we see in Genesis 12 a number of promises. We've then got to look later in the Bible to see actually he follows through, he delivers, he honours the promises. And there's many um, episodes like that throughout the Bible. We can study the Bible and remind ourselves as his character as a promise maker and a promise keeper. And then finally, we can test God in the right way, not in a cynical, um, calculated way, but in a stepping out in faithful sort of way. If you were with us uh, a few years ago when we looked at the book of Joshua, you might remember the people of God um, being told to um, cross the River Jordan. And they didn't, they weren't just told to sit on the bank and for God to perform a miracle and then when they sort of sat there with their arms folded and worked out if it's okay then they crossed. No, God said step into the waters and it was once they put their feet their feet into the waters that God parted it. Let's step out in in God and and, and see how God delivers and 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 responds to our, our steps of faith even if it's uncertain and we're not quite sure whether we're going in the right direction. Let's step out in faith and see how God responds. Jesus gave us this promise. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. These worldly things around us seem so important to us now, but Jesus promises us better things He promises us eternal life. Let us remember the promises from God's word that are precious to us. Let us remember the track record of God, the one 
who always delivers on his promises. So let's pray as we end. Father, we just thank you for your word to us today and we pray that you'd help us to grow our faith, help us to be people who trust you more, help us to be people who don't hold on to the things of this world but hold on to them lightly, that when the time comes for for you to call us to release our, our grip, that we're willing to let go. Help us to trust you in our lives now. Help us to walk with you and to know you responding to our, our little steps of faith, we pray. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he ultimately was the man who responded in total obedience. He went to the cross um, and he trusted that you uh, would deliver him from that, Lord. So thank you for hearing our prayers and pray for your blessing on each of us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We're meeting online every Sunday at 10am. Head to hopechurchgilford.com for more information. We look forward to seeing you.